and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Before we move into the portion of our weekly get-together of communion, we have this moment of consecration. It is to take the word and set the people of God apart by the truth of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 10 for this morning's scripture reading will read 10 through 13. Hebrews 2.10, for it is fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Children, you can be dismissed to Children's Church. Hebrews continues to proclaim to us that Jesus is better. Would you, would you say that with me? Jesus is better. That's the theme. It's what we're going through verse by verse through Ephesians. And this particular section, which starts in chapter 2, verse 1, we're told that if we are to conclude that Jesus is better, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. Maybe you sit here and you say, I've paid attention to what the Bible says about Jesus. Well, would you pay closer attention? I, I, I do pay closer attention. Well, the verse says, pay much closer attention. That's what I invite you to do, as I have been doing that through Hebrews chapter 2. In fact, I would tell you I am greatly blessed by the study of what I'm going to share with you now. And, and I'm also concerned that everything that I have seen over hours and hours and hours of study, I won't be able to share with you appropriately in the moments we have. So we pray that the Spirit of God would be the teacher that makes this truth clear to our hearts. We are in real danger of not thinking about the daily implication of the whole Christ. We are in real danger of thinking about Christ almost exclusively in terms of, do I get out of hell? And not very much about things like modern or current affairs. Things like our family, our finance, our commute to work, our breakfast choice. We have to think much more carefully about Christ. And so the title that I've given for this morning is that Christ is Son of Man, Suffering Savior, Reigning Brother. Son of Man. Much to be said, I think, to our faith families. I think about you, brothers and sisters, much to be said about what it means that he who makes him the founder decreed that he would be made the perfect founder through suffering. 
much to be said, and I hope I can communicate. Suffering Savior. Like, I think, as, as one of your brothers, I think we get that. I think, okay, cross. Died in my place. And we're going to celebrate that. That's the second point. It's going to go quick, but it's going to be enjoyable. Third point, reigning brother. That's the point I'm concerned we sometimes omit vivid requirements of the whole Christ from our life. Reigning brother. Let me pray, and then we'll study. Father, be glorified as we proclaim Christ as all and all. We are not selfish, Father. We do not want to be selfish, so we pray for those who are proclaiming and preaching Christ similarly today. As we've talked all over the world, the persecuted church, there are Christians who are proclaiming Christ. But Lord, here in our city, I pray that as preaching is happening in this moment, that all those churches that we regard with so much thankfulness for their ministry, that they too would be honoring you and this ongoing preaching ministry that we're thankful for in them and prayerful for here in us. In Christ's name, amen. In this text, okay, so just hold chapter 2, and you'll see what I think is a helpful pattern. The pattern is this. It starts in verses 1 through 4 with a need statement. I would reduce that need statement to pay much closer attention. Need statement. Verses 5 through 9, Pastor Josh spoke last week, and, and I'm going to be building on a lot of things I think he shared with you that were really helpful last week. I listened to the sermon twice as we were out of town last week. Listen to the sermon twice, and you're going to hear me several times refer to things that he, he introduced that the text goes on to expand on. There are two proofs, one in 5 through 9, and another one in 10 through 13, and they are this. If pay close attention is the need statement, then verse 5 through 9 is all things will be brought into subjection. That's a need statement. Pay close attention to Christ because subjection of all things is coming. Second proof, for we are brought into that glory of his rule. We are brought into that glory of his rule. That's what we're going to look at today, 10 through 13. So, conclusion next week, 14 through 18, which I'm so thankful because the conclusion statement kind of restates a bunch of things above it, which is good because I don't have to say everything right now. I get next week to say some of the same things over again, which I'm excited about. Verse 14 to 18 is the conclusion. The conclusion is this. The incarnate Christ is the only propitiating Savior for sinners. Jesus is better. Don't go anywhere else. He is the only wrath-satisfying, conquering, ruling Savior for sinners. That's how the chapter will conclude. And we will walk through these three points. Son of man, suffering savior, reigning brother. First one. Son of man is seen in Christ condescending into our state. Verse 10. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory. Okay. A bit of a run on up to this point, right? It was fitting that he, the author of faith, for whom and through whom all things exist, in that he's bringing many sons 
out of exile into glory should make the founder perfect through suffering. Okay. What does it mean that the founder of our salvation is made perfect through suffering? This seems puzzling, right? Perfection through suffering, especially as we apply it to Jesus. Does Jesus become better because of his suffering? Did Jesus have to work out some imperfection by enduring suffering? Well, that that can't be biblically accurate. So what does it mean? And honestly, as the first audience would have sat in congregation like this, and someone would have brought them the the parchment and said, "This, this was a letter to us, guarding us from departing from the faith. They would have read it. They would have got to this point and went, what? The divine God had to be perfected through suffering? It would have been puzzling to associate the divine with suffering. There would have been nothing in culture that would have indicated that bringing lowly, that condescending, that suffering would be a part of perfecting. But this is exactly what the scripture says. For whom and through whom all things exist is making him perfect through suffering. The statement starts here. Because it was fitting. For it was fitting. So we're, we're told to look up, right? For it was fitting. You've, you've heard pastors, you've heard me say, when you see the word therefore, you have to look back and see what it's there for. And that happens a lot in chapter 2. So for pushes our eyes up to the previous verses. Look back at verse number 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, just so we're clear, namely Jesus. We see him crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering to death. So perfection through suffering, we now understand what it is. It's death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Because it's fitting he should be made this way. He, sent by God, should come into our state and act on behalf of us in that state and deliver us to glory. Okay? Now, take your Bible and just look at chapter 3. What's the author of Hebrews going to start doing in chapter 3? In, in chapters 1 and 2, he's been saying, Jesus is better than angels. And what we're handling is kind of a transition. And you see where he's going? Jesus is better than Moses. Okay. It's fitting that the one who would bring them to glory should be acquainted with their situation. Come into their suffering. It's, a, it's fitting that he should be made a human high priest. It's fitting that he should be consecrated through condescending, made a little lower than the angels for a little while, that he might be in their state with them, bringing them to glory. So, let's use the imagery that we have recently studied from Exodus. Let's use the imagery of the founding of salvation, the founder made perfect through suffering. 
The sufferer sanctifies, okay? Keep that in mind. I hope you see it. The sufferer sanctifies. Verse 11 tells us that he is the rescuer. Okay, what is the suffering of human experience? It's decaf coffee. A lumpy pillow. No, it's death. There is this great adversary of which there is no escape on our own. Death. The suffering of the human experience is that we are subject to its bondage by sin. So, friend, we are captive. We're enslaved in sin and subject then to its death. The Christ, who is the better Moses, comes into the land of which we live in this peril and sets captives free. It is fitting that he should come into our suffering state and claim victory for our, on our behalf and deliver many sons to glory. Okay, that's verse 10. The Son of Man came to our experience and, as verse 9 says, tasted death. Tasted death. It's fitting that he should be made perfect through suffering. He's not improved. It becomes obvious to us that there's no alternative choice to Christ because he came to where we were and brought us to glory. So he's not getting better. Perfect through suffering doesn't mean, well, Jesus put up with a lot and became a better Messiah. He became more obviously perfect to us because he walked into Egypt. He endured the afflictions of the persecutors. The most significant death had been the death of Adam, hadn't it? And when you start reading the Bible, you go, oh, don't do this, Adam. As soon as you do this, you will surely die. And we read that, we go, oh, death. I was talking to my daughter the other day. What's that little book that you've given her in uh, uh, my Kenzie? I think think they left for this part of the service. Um, (laughs) Yeah, they just leave, yeah. Don't let dad see. Okay, I think they're, they're doing something good, I hope. Okay. What's that book? What's that book you would give Kenzie? She's reading, uh, ladies, uh, Jana. Was it Jana? That little book? Okay, sorry. Sorry, it's not in my notes. So she's reading this little devotional about God's big story, God's, God's plan. And, and she's talking about the garden. And she says, and then God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. And she talked about their nakedness. And I said, and what did they look like when they left? What, she, what do you mean? What, what were they wearing? Oh I, oh, I guess they were wearing animal skin. I said, where'd that come from? God killed an animal. Don't disobey or death will happen. And the first death is the death of that animal whose skin covered Adam and Eve. The most significant death was the death of Adam. Then Jesus, then Jesus comes in to our bondage, to our Egypt, to our slavery, and flips the script. And forever after, another death was more significant, which is? His death on the cross. Every sinner is now invited 
to step into his death. He is a more perfect Savior and bring many sons to glory. For more on this, if you have a sermon handout, I would invite you to read 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Corinthians 5, or Romans 5. Here's what I want you to know. The most significant natural experience of man is death. The most significant death is Adam's. Jesus flips that on its head, and the most significant death becomes the death of victory, which is Christ. Here's what I want you to know. All of human history is not geocentric. All of human history is not geocentric. It is theocentric. At the center of everything that's been happening is not our experience. It's the way King Jesus flips our experience on its head. The whole story is a God story, not a Rob story. It is not geocentric. It is not geocentric. It is theocentric. Death, Adam. Oh, geocentric. Christ flips it over. In death, there is life. Theocentric. I want to double down on the perfect through suffering. And here's what I'm going to do. Let's, let's go back and tell the Exodus story. Right? Moses is Pharaoh's like, stepbrother and half-brother. And Moses comes, uh, yeah, okay, we're going to move on. And so Moses comes into town. People know him. He's been living in the palace. He's, like, people are friends with him. And they go, Moses, where have you been? So good to have you back. Come here. Let's have a banquet. The whole story after that point goes differently, right? He didn't step into a celebrated reunion. He stepped into conflict, suffering, persecution, threat of peril. Now, the angels, Hebrews 1 and 2, including the fallen and Lucifer, what if, what if the condescending son of man had come to earth and the angels, including Lucifer, went, oh, a heavenly being, welcome, this is creation. It's not great, but it'll do. And they'd embraced the one who had come to deliver many sons to glory. It would change the story dramatically, right? The prince of this world did not welcome the deliverer, but in fact sought his death from the very beginning. Here's what I want, here's what I want you to understand. The incarnate Christ is the exodus. I mean, it, I mean it exactly that way. Like if, you, if you're thumbing through all the chapters of Exodus, I want you to understand the incarnate Christ is what that story is about. Here's what I mean. In the minor prophet Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1, God says to Hosea, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Hmm. Okay, Exodus. Wait. <laughs> when Jesus was born, Matthew 2, 13, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you. He rose, took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was, this is Matthew two fifteen. 
This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken to the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt I call my son. So there's two things about that. You want to know what Exodus is about? Jesus. You want to know who Israel is? Jesus. Jesus. Because there's, there's never been a better covenant-keeping people than Jesus. Jesus, therefore, let's keep in our text, Jesus is described as the founder of salvation. Founder is a really pretty word. It, uh, it means like a pioneer. He comes as the son of man, condescends, suffers, we're in bondage. He steps into our situation, suffers, delivers many sons to glory, and walks us out like a pioneer leads a group of people. He is the pioneer. He is the trailblazer who leads many sons to glory. God, better than angels. Man, better than Moses, brings sons to glory. 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 Okay, we come up short here. We come up short. And Josh helped us last week. Glory. Yeah. Not fire, but glory. And we just fall short. We just come up short. We don't understand what it means that the suffering Savior brings many sons to glory. We, We sell ourselves short. We think, yeah, streets of gold, I don't know, harps and clouds and, I don't know, amorphous everything and no color. I, okay, that means glory. Woo. And we, we do, we come up so woefully short. Bringing many sons to glory, what does that mean? Well, first of all, he delivers us to a place. We, we know that. He's the pioneer, doesn't wander around. He brings us to a place. What is that place? It is God's everlasting life. And not only is it that everlasting life, but it is everlasting function redeemed. Redeemed. I think, I think one of the biggest detriments to Christians is that we don't really look forward to heaven. We don't really look forward to heaven. And the reason we don't really look forward to heaven is because heaven sounds really uncomfortable. You're a doer. You have been blessed with certain talents. You like using those talents. You're a steward. You like being commissioned to go and do stuff. You like the sense of accomplishment when it's done. And heaven sounds like the absence of all of that. And it's not. He brings many sons to glory, subjecting everything to Jesus, and we inherit the function of overseeing everything for eternity in the garden bought back. It is eschatological inheritance. It's it's eternity. It's coming. It encompasses the home and the function we hold in the home. Now, I just mentioned the garden, and Josh last week took us back to the garden. Let's go back to the garden. In the garden, Adam and Eve are given rule over creation and told that they should order it. This is the glory of their unique identity. Dear weren't supposed to order it. Frogs are not ordering it. Trees are not ordering it. Those created to be vocationally like me, order it. Subdue it. The people in the garden are told to steward the place. Same thing in the Exodus. All right. 
come out from that bondage, delivered to glory, which meant a place and a purpose. Come into the land of promise and steward it. Rule over it as my elect nation of people. Adam, by disobedience, lost opportunity to steward and order the garden. Adam, in his sin, became more like his father the devil than Yahweh. Exodus is the elect nation coming into a place to steward it. And they forfeit that stewardship through sin. Uh, so, so I want to say, without a lot of um, vigor, if Adam and Eve were sitting here today, are we are we trying to figure out a way to get them back into the garden to steward and order it? Like, have you ever done that? Have you ever pleaded with God? God, won't you be merciful? Put them back in the garden. They forfeit the place by not being faithful stewards, by not obeying. But maybe right now, in our moment in time, you're going, I have a question about property and all the fighting that's going on over property. Can you answer some questions about land in the Middle East and a small piece of property called the Gaza Strip? And I can. <clears throat> no kingdom in Israel has yet to occupy what God promised in land. Solomon came close. There are some people who try to argue that Solomon reached the fulfillment of it because he, he collected tax from as much as had been promised. I don't know if that's accurate. So they haven't yet acquired it. And we see conflict break out where it seems like on every side it's being suffocated. And we go, ah! Like we want Adam and Eve back in the garden, we insist that Israel be back in the land of promise. Except that's not consistent. We don't do that with both. We don't call out to God. Put Adam and Eve back in the garden already. Second Corinthians 1.20. All of the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Adam, you want to reject the command and the authority and the rule, the instructions of God, then you're out. And in fact, I'm going to place a guard at the entrance so you can't get back in. Because you're exiled. You're kicked out. Because the promise of the garden is yes and amen in obedience and in Christ. And then these exiled people, he brings many sons he is the exodus. And 
I, I just want to warn you to just not, I want to warn you to just, oh man, there's so much cultural noise. It's just always. Politicians live on it. They live on it. They pander to us thinking we have some weird idea. And I'm begging you, pay much more attention to Jesus. In him, all the promises are yes and amen. And if yours is a choice to spit on his cross, then don't count on the promises. I'm telling you. Now here, you're saying, whoa, pastor, that sounds terrible. It is and it isn't. Because then Jesus comes in and preaches the Sermon on the Mount. And you're wondering about land. And he says to all those who show the gospel attitudes, we call them beatitudes, to all those who show gospel attitudes, you will inherit heaven and earth. And God the Father does abundantly above that which we could ask or think. So I'm telling you, stop begging God for small, misplaced favors when in Christ we get everything. Don't abandon Jesus for some weird political perspective. I wanted to say that without vigor. <laughs> I love you and I don't, I don't want to yell at you, but, but man, do I want to care for you. I want to protect you from becoming a pawn to some stupid political agenda. I just want to protect you. And I don't want you to abandon Christ and think you can assume the promise of Eden where Christ has been rejected. Do not depart from the exclusive hope of Christ to all those who come to Christ, Jew and Gentile alike. He does abundantly above more than we ever thought to ask for. We inherit heaven and earth. We, 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 we want little slivers. <laughs> we want these little tiny insignificant spots. And God says, look to Jesus and I'll give you the world. Don't depart from Christ. Therefore, it's fitting that the one whom everything exists for would be seen to my eyes and my heart as perfect as he condescends and comes into my place. Do you see everything subject to him? It doesn't seem that way, does it? We don't yet see it, yet we know it's coming. Can you believe that he is the Christ and that he alone is the pioneer and the way and the hope of all of our salvation? Son of man. I told you that one would be hard. This one, suffering Savior, is just a sweet salve to our soul. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. The founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. The founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. Both the Son of Man and the rest of humanity arrive at their glory after death. The founder of salvation, perfect through suffering, leading many sons to glory. For Christ, it was a glory he held before. 
John 17, 4, I glorified you on earth, the Son prays to the Father, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in, not only in your presence, um, uh, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. For us, that being led to glory is a totally new gift. The glory is anticipated. It's never been enjoyed. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to come. Look at what it says in verses 10 and 11. Both he who sanctifies, that is Jesus, and those being sanctified, that is the many, being led to glory, have the same. I want you to notice this first of all. Jesus does not need sanctifying. He is the sanctifier. There, there is this just, I, 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 wish, I wish I could knit it together like a beautiful quilt and you would just wear this. I wish you could wear this. There's this beautiful Christology that's right here. I, I'm going to read it because I don't, I don't want to mess it up. Eternal God the Son condescends to the human state, even suffering unto death. Yet, his holy state is undiminished. He doesn't get stained by coming to where we are. Jesus and human beings share in the same nature, but Jesus stands apart from the others in the sense that he does the sanctifying we need to be sanctified. So you see, can you see that wonderful balance? It's just beautiful. It's, it's, it's totally right. Jesus isn't off at a distance, holier than thou, unacquainted with our grief and suffering. But he comes right into it. He stands right in the muck and the mire of our situation, which is sin leading to death. But even in, that sanctification, even in that situation, he doesn't have to look back outside of himself and say, deliver us to glory. He is the sanctifier even while in all of our mess. We need to be sanctified. <clears throat> the son will sanctify and save many through his suffering. Look, look down to verse 14, the last half of the verse. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. One of my favorite expressions of this suffering Savior is in Colossians chapter 2. Would you turn your Bible to Colossians chapter 2? Just the sweetness of Christ's death in our place. Colossians chapter 2 verse 13. The word of the Lord ministers to you. And me as we sit here today. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You who were in the natural state of sin and destruction. God made alive together with Christ. There's resurrection. In him we have resurrection. Having forgiven us our trespasses. Just beautiful judicial conclusion. Like the gavel slams down. Forgiven. Trespasses. Verse 14. By. Canceling the record of debt that stood against us. 
with its legal demands. This he set aside. Where? Where? Nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's wonderful. That's Jesus is the exodus. Jesus walks into Egypt. And Pharaoh is there. These are my people. I'm in control. There will be no salvation for them. And God, through Moses, puts Pharaoh to open shame, canceling any sense of authority he thought he held over God's people. And Jesus is the exodus at the cross, triumphing over all of our oppressors, sin and its death, and disarming it and putting it to open shame. The precise thing that had been the downfall of the angel Lucifer. He must have thought would be the certain downfall of the son. To, to condescend, to come low, to, to be a little lower than the angels, to come not to be served, but to serve, to humble yourself to death, even the death on the cross, to be the curse that hangs on a tree. Lucifer must have said in his heart, no way he'll put up with that. And he goes to the cross and he says things like, forgive them, they know not what they do. Not my will, but yours be done. It is finished. And he puts to open shame a meager angel who would never have humbled himself to suffer for our salvation. <laughs> I, wish, I wish I knew how to speak better. Because that's, that's more than I can say with words. I don't have the right words to say that sort of stuff. The one for whom all things exist bows his head as a lamb-like sacrifice and puts the old serpent to shame, crushing his head under his feet. F.F. Bruce says, The perfect son has become his people's perfect savior, opening up their way to glory. And in order to become that, he endured suffering and death. And as a transition... Verse 11, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. One source. Uh, It's really ambiguous in Greek. It just says from one. Jesus, the sanctifier, and us to be sanctified have one or are from one. Well, it says that. I think it means God the Father. I think it means that the Son, sanctifier, and the people being sanctified share in the same source of trust and hope and contentment and salvation, the Father, I think. The the reason I think that is because of what he says next as his proofs. And this takes us into our third point. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God that he has given me. Okay, so having the same, the sanctified and the sanctifier. And my question is simply this as we leave this point. Where else would you go? The suffering Savior, where else would you go? He is the word of life. But this is number three. And this is where I want to 
I want to minister to your commute to work on Wednesday. I want to minister to the conversation that you'll have with your children Thursday after supper. He is our reigning brother. Christians Christians tend to have our first impressions of Jesus shaped either at the nativity, the baby, or at the cross, the humbled sacrifice. And, And we don't often broaden the whole Christ out to reigning brother. So I I think this text helps us with that. This is why. So Hebrews 2.11, this is why. We have the same source. We, the people, being brought to glory, are being brought there by the decree of the Father, born of the Spirit. Christ, of course, is sent to us by the Father, testified to by the Spirit, This is why Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers. We have the same Father. Jesus is not ashamed to count those being sanctified, the helpless, as brothers and sisters. So as we've seen the author of Hebrews do, he takes us to two Old Testament proofs. First one is in verse 12, and it is a cross-reference from Psalm 22. A messianic psalm that anticipates Jesus' death. So these words are meant by the author to be the words of Christ, saying this in, verse, in Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two: I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Did you, did you follow the last, like, 90 seconds? Our reigning brother... Okay, look at verse 11 again. He who sanctifies and those being sanctified all have one source. That is why he, the sanctifier, is not ashamed to say this about J. Sparks. Jesus, the Christ, is not ashamed to say, I will tell your name to the rest of the brothers. In the midst of the whole congregation, I will sing your praise. What? <laughs> That's more than I expected. I expected maybe Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two was, yeah, okay, the congregation gets together and we sing the praises of Christ. That makes sense to me. But Jesus, in bringing sons to glory, having us the sanctified and him the sanctifier, the same source, he's not ashamed to say, you are my brothers. You're so pleasant to me. I'm, I'm so joyful in our brotherhood. I did not expect that. He says it again in verse 13. He puts the words of Isaiah 8 into the mouth of Jesus And he says the words of Isaiah 8. And again, so we're in verse 13. I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So having the same source, the sanctifier and the sanctified unify our voices together and say, we trust God. And behold, 
I and the children, so the sanctifier and the sanctified, say, behold, the children that God has given to me. We are the family, in other words. <clears throat> God promises Isaiah. Isaiah is discouraged in his text in Isaiah 8. He's, uh, he's doubting whether the, the plan of redemption is going to work. And, and, and God assures Isaiah. He said, it's going to work. It's going to work. And he says it this way. The Lord spoke to Isaiah with his strong hand on him and gave Isaiah a warning. He said, don't walk in the way other people walk. And then said, don't call cons conspiracy all that people call conspiracy. Surefire way to doubt. Don't call conspiracy what other people are saying is conspiracy. And then he says, and don't fear what they're afraid of. Don't live in dread. You're wondering if the plan of salvation is going to work. You're wondering if God is in fact going to bring many sons to glory. Just fear what people fear. And you'll become so distracted from the promises of God, you'll live in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him who shall, you shall honor as holy, let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become for you a sanctuary. So that's what God said to Isaiah. And then Jesus repeats the words. They come from the mouth of Jesus. And he says, you're doubting if in fact I can bring you to glory? Just stop getting caught up in conspiracies. Stop living in dread. And I'm going to get to that next week. The fear of death causes us to be in bondage in life. Stop living in dread. And look, he goes on to say, and look at the children who are coming after you. So if Jesus is in the garden and he's praying... Father, if there's anybody, let this cup pass from me. And, and the father says, look at the children who are coming after you. And he looks back and sees all those who have been given to Christ by the father and goes, the plan of salvation is going to work. They will be my family. I will tell of their name in the midst of the congregation and I will sing your praise. <clears throat> We live today as a testimony that Jesus is a better Moses leading the captives free. Our salvation from slavery to glory is more certain than the historical account that Israelites got out of Egypt. The Christ is our reigning brother to whom all things will be subject and he will bring them to glory. I'm an oldest child. I don't have an older sibling. How many of you have older brothers and sisters? You have older brothers and sisters? My experience with the way a young sibling looks at an old one is an experience I've only seen in the eyes of my children. And I thought about what it means to a toddler to have a much older brother. 
And I, I see it. I see it in Ray's eyes. Don't tell Ray, but as far as he knows, there's nothing Drew can't do. Don't break his heart. Right now, he's pretty sure he can fly. So, and there are these situations that Ray might come across where maybe he feels threatened or scared. And in that moment, it would be altogether predictable to see Ray go, I'm going to go get my brother. And, and that's what I'm trying to say to you pastorally about the myriad of moments that you come across that seem daunting and terrifying and difficult is that this text tells us that he's not just positionally our brother, he's enjoyably our brother. He says, that's my little brother, and I'm going to tell the world, and I'm going to tell them how impressed I am that we are family together. <laughs> and in all those myriad of moments, when you can say, where will my help come from? This text is reminding us that Christ, our Savior, is our help in certain trial. He is not just a Lord who has this dutiful responsibility, but do you see the intimacy of a big brother coming to the aid of a small brother or sister? Like delightfully coming to the aid. Like as soon as I heard your voice, I came. And Christ becomes all of our hope. In death, sure, but you already knew that but he becomes all of our hope in life. Like living with fears of uncertainty, living with discouragement of hopes dashed, living with frustration of cultural demise, living with crushing sense of inadequacy. And our big brother delights to be our all in all in every one of those perils. Son of man, suffering savior, reigning brother. In my sermon notes, that last one is underlined. I underlined the last one in the title, reigning brother. I hope that you understand what that means. You remember last week when Josh read this? At present, we do not see everything in subject to him. I know that we don't. And therefore, our, our hearts are prone to say, I think things might have gotten out of control. I think they might have gotten too big for my brother. At present, we don't see everything in subject to him. But we see him. Like take everything you can see and you don't see it already functioning in subjection to him, but just take everything you can see and then look at Jesus and ask your soul who reigns. And I know it doesn't look like this is the everlasting kingdom of Jesus Christ on earth. I know. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. We are in real danger of not thinking about the myriad of daily implications of the whole Christ. 
I'm in danger of that. I'm in danger of, of going through my day and problem solving a dozen different problems without acknowledging my reigning brother. Just practically getting things done. Sometimes failing and then being frustrated with myself. I'm in real danger of neglecting to apply the reigning brother to whatever it is I'm wrestling with. The only hope for sinners. Do not abandon your hope in him. Whatever it is. I mean, I wish I could go around the room and just ask you this week, what seems to be the most pressing, difficult event coming up? Or I could ask you this past week, what seems to be the most pressing, difficult event? And without feeling like I was being trivial or simplifying, I would, I would pastorally delight to say, remember your reigning brother. Whatever it is, you know, my, my kids are headed off to college or school or workforce or, or my marriage seems very fragile or I, I really need a promotion. Finances have gotten tight and I need this new job. And I don't feel like I would be trivializing your pain by saying, remember your reigning brother. And so if you listen to the sermon about Christ and you think, where's the application in this? I, I'm telling you, I can't think of a place not to apply this. That's my struggle. I can't think of a place we don't apply. The reigning Christ, who condescends as the Son of Man, suffers in my place. And then, even while I don't see everything subject to him, I know I, I can't, I can't see it. But I read texts like this and I see Jesus. He is not only our hope in death, he's our hope in life. And I would invite you to minister to each other and, and join me in proclaiming his death until he comes again. We get a chance to take communion, and I'm reminded this morning that because we don't yet see everything subject to him, and when we don't, I mean, you can't hardly get through the 6 o'clock news without your heart just being devastated with concern. I don't see everything subject to him, but I see him. And part of the way I see him is when I take communion and I eat and I drink and I proclaim his death until he comes again. Everything is going to be subject to him. And this table reminds my soul it's coming for sure.